0: Well, if you've got a Bible with you tonight, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10? 1 Corinthians 10, like 1 Corinthians 11, is one of our frequent go-to passages for a Lord's Supper because it mentions the Lord's Supper, it deals with it. How important is the Lord's Supper? I can imagine some different answers to that. I've lived here in Albuquerque almost 10 years now. And I feel like it's home. I felt like it's home for a long time. So hopefully I can make a a cultural observation as something more of an insider than an outsider. As one of you, not just uh, someone who lives here. But after 10 years of pastoring here in Albuquerque and 14 years total of pastoring in the western U.S., I I think I've seen a pattern. So at the risk of uh, overgeneralization... Not everybody falls in these two categories, but, but many people I talk to I could characterize as either being altar boys or cowboys. I'll explain. You've got the altar boys, they're the religious ritualists, whether they have a Roman Catholic background or not. They might be New Age altar boys, and they think more in terms of building up karma than they do merit. But they're ritualists, they're religious, they're check-the-box kind of people. In the parable of the prodigal son, they're the older brother, not the younger one. But then you've got the cowboys, they're the renegades to religion. They're either indifferent to your religion or any religion, or they're intent to make up their own recipe about what's right and what's needed. They're the younger brothers in the parable of Luke 15. So I think with any number of religious beliefs or religious practices, you find a lot of altar boys and a lot of cowboys here in the West. So take, for example, the Lord's Supper. How important is it? Well, some professing Christians never go out of their way to partake of it. You obviously are different. You're here tonight. You didn't just stumble onto this meeting. You're not in the wrong class like the first week of college. You're here. But some, even DSC members, are comfortable to go a whole year without meeting together like this for the Lord's Supper. Some ebb and flow in their commitment to it based on convenience of schedule. Some ebb and flow in their interest in the Lord's Supper in accordance with how much it seems to be working or helping right then or in recent months. These are the religious cowboys. They refuse to get tied down. And they like to ride off into the sunset. They might be saved. And they're, they're sort of, uh, how do we say it? They're, they're getting better, you could say. They're, they're trying to work out recovering cowboys, you could call them. But then there's some who always feel better when they partake of the Lord's Supper. And they're not sure exactly why. Here's one possibility why. It's a clear objective task, it's a verb, it's a do. Like reading your Bible or a prayer time in the morning, it's something you can do and then walk away and say, I did it, there, it's done. So some altar boys, we could call them, Roman Catholic or not, might think of religious acts like the Lord's Supper or Bible reading or giving to the church a certain amount. Something like a Bible verse a day keeps the devil away. Well, neither of these are right. And like the western U.S., the church of Corinth had some cowboys and some altar boys in its ranks. They overestimated how the Lord's Supper could protect them, and they underestimated all that it provided. Let me show you the nugget of what I'm talking about in 1 Corinthians 10. It's verses 16 and 17. There Paul writes, the cup of blessing, speaking of the whole Lord's Supper together, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So let's first help out those who would underestimate all the Lord's Supper provides. And to do so, take some deep contemplation. I realize it's 7 p.m. on a Wednesday. But it takes some deep contemplation for us to get to the real meaning, what Paul is saying here, the real purposes of the Lord's Supper. To do so, you have to dig deep into what we might call Lord's Supper theology. Only then can we come back to those issues of how those in Corinth might overestimate or underestimate the Lord's Supper, how we might do that. Paul's saying here the Lord's Supper is communion. It's a rich word, multi layered word, multi dimensional, especially as it relates to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is communion with union. But it presupposes something before. It presupposes union with Christ. Before you can have communion with Christ, you have to have union in his death and resurrection. So we as Christians, when we see things in the New Testament like blood, that's not just talking about history of Jesus dying. That's Jesus dying on our behalf, in our place, for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. All this that we're looking at in verse 16 and 17 assumes a participation in that body and blood. And we first partake of Christ like that through faith before we should ever partake of this meal. So communion presupposes union. But this cup of communion, notice this, Paul says, it's a blessing It's the cup of blessing. That should signal to us that it's rich in purposes and it's good for us. It gives blessing. The cup does something in a sense. And Paul says we bless it. The cup of blessing which we bless, which means we give thanks for, just like Jesus. The night he was betrayed, he gave thanks, and then he gave him the cup, gave him the bread. So this is a cup of blessing It's a cup which we bless, which we give thanks. That's why we call this sometimes, in more high church circles, they call it the Eucharist. It's the giving of thanks. We give thanks to God in his salvation uh, through this meal. But this meal is also a kind of divine communication. It's divine communication communication the Lord's Supper is God's word it's the gospel in picture form the Lord's Supper is the gospel laid before us as an invitation afresh not that we lost it but an invitation because we still need it and because we go on believing it and because this is a thing that exercises our faith muscles and repentance muscles That's what Paul means in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 11, when he says in verse 26, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes with this meal. The meal is a proclamation of Jesus. Of course, proclamation comes before partaking of the meal, but that's not what Paul means. He means the meal itself is something of a proclamation, an unspoken proclamation. It's a living illustration It portrays Christ's goodness to us. It has purposes of nourishing us, strengthening us. The Lord's Supper communicates all of the gospel benefits as our own. We ingest it as an exercise of faith that we have partaken of this in reality already. It's just a symbol of what has hopefully already taken place on a far greater level with Christ himself. But the cup is not just divine communication, the cup is divine communion with union. It's a sharing, it's a participation with Christ. So, again, read in verse 16 the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Is it not a participation, a sharing? See, there's union with Christ that we get from the beginning, and there's communion with Christ that we have all through the Christian life and into glory. There's the reality that we have at justification, Then there's this right that he's given us. On the one hand, our account is settled and unchanging, but communion with him is to be pursued. And one of the ways that we pursue communion with him is in the communion meal. To use the language of 1 Peter 2, which we'll look at again on Sunday... It's this, through this, that we taste that the Lord is good. Oh, I know, we, we've tasted the Lord is good through his word and through the gospel proclamation, but we still partake of this bread and wine, communicating this truth of the goodness of God in symbol form, and through it we're nourished and we're worshiping, we're communion. It's, it's intimate. It's a sharing. Oh, I know this is... Mystical, mysterious, but somehow real. It's also somehow, mystically and mysteriously, a communion with others. Communion with others. Verse 17, there is one bread, that's Christ. And we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We who partake of the Lord's Supper are those who've partaken of the body of Christ on our behalf. He's the one bread, and we share that one bread. So we share everything in a sense. There's the vertical and horizontal dimension to this communion. At the same time, we're communing with God, and as we partake in this service, we're communing with each other. We may not know each other. We may not have much in common. Paul says in verse 17, "We who are many." And he doesn't mean many in number so much as he means "we who are diverse. We who are many in ethnicity, we who are many in size, me, we who are many in age." We're all diverse, all sorts of people, all color, all backgrounds. We who are many are meeting together to bless the Lord and to receive the blessing of the bread and the wine. That's why Paul uses plural in verse 16. He says, it's a cup which we bless. It's the bread that we break. Paul's writing this as an apostle. You might have been in churches where a minister stands behind the table and he is there in charge. And there's some good theology behind that. I wouldn't be opposed to it if that was our tradition. But but I think that there's some interesting theology here in this verse that would hint at that not happening, perhaps anyway. We who are many, we break the bread. We partake of the cup together. The Apostle Paul doesn't say, I'll break the bread and then give it to you. We. We're all in this together and we share it together. That's why Paul, in the next chapter, as he returns to the theme of the Lord's Supper, he says twice, when you come together. That's why we partake of this meal together as a church. We we don't just mail out special bread and special small cups of juice to your home and say do it there why not it's more convenient certainly faster save some gas money you don't have to be around people who might smell a little bit different than you no now we do it together when you come together you do this it's a horizontal orientation because we share of one loaf or one bread who is Christ. And so if we're united to Christ, we're united to each other. And we have the most important thing in all the world in common. The Lord's Supper ties us to each other. But it also signifies unrivaled devotion. Look down at verse 20 21. Now here Paul's going to give a little parenthesis about sacrifices that are made to to idols, which he argues is really a sacrifice made to a demon, and hence you're participating with that demon. So he says, at the end of verse 20, I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons demons what this means is when you buy into the lord jesus and his righteousness on your behalf when you buy into his saving lordship then all other rivalries go away at least they should he's a jealous god he will not make concessions he does not like rivalries he doesn't want Two kinds of sacrificial meals to identify with idols, with old sacrificial, with old pagan sacrifices like the Corinthians were apparently doing. Even though idols don't really exist, there's really no God behind them, Paul says they're sacrificing to a demon. There's a demon behind them. And in doing so, they're breaking fellowship with God. Now, we have to understand something more of the context of why Paul was writing this, why he dealt with the Lord's Supper like he did. I said at the beginning that some in Corinth apparently overestimated and some underestimated the power or the purposes of the Lord's Supper. So apparently, those Corinthian Christians thought that their baptism and their practice of the Lord's Supper was some kind of antidote to evil. It was some sort of immunization that allowed them to still participate with the the practice around them of sacrificing to idols. It's probably not that they thought that these idols were real and they were perfectly okay with being uh, playing with many gods. think that's the case but maybe just out of social convenience they kept doing the practice of sacrificing to idols because everyone around them was doing it but they thought the thing that would protect them in the midst of it was their baptism and the lord's supper in this sense they thought too much of the sacraments they thought too much of the lord's supper in this sense they weren't cowboys they were altar boys So Paul takes them back to the time of Moses. So look back at verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 10. He reminds them that those around the time of the Red Sea, they were all baptized into Moses. They were in the Moses gang, right? In verse 4, Paul says, they drank from the miracle rock in the desert when there was no water to be found And and God provided water for a million, maybe, or more, through a rock. They had that? They they had that kind of special provision? You could say they had that kind of holy water? But verse 5, God was not pleased with many of them. God was not pleased with them. They gave in to sexual immorality, They turned to idolatry of many kinds and they grumbled and they doubted God. So that's why Paul warns the Corinthians with these somewhat famous words in verse 12. In verse 12 he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Corinthians, you've been baptized, you meet all the time, whenever the church has it, you meet for the Lord's Supper, well done. Let me show you some people who were baptized into Moses, who drank from the holy rock that God split open for Moses' staff. They fell. If you think you stand, take heed. If you think you stand on your own merits, take heed. If you think you would never stand on your own merits, take heed, lest you fall. The Israelites of old trusted in their spiritual food, in their nearness to Moses, and yet it was irrelevant because it wasn't accompanied with faith. And Paul says the Corinthians may be in danger of following in their footsteps temptation is real and it's dangerous and temptation sometimes inches its way all the way off the cliff into apostasy. But temptation need not be decisive. Hence, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you. That's not common to man. Everyone has temptation. Those who persevered in the faith before you and those who haven't. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man, but God is faithful and he will not let you you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Temptation is limited by God. In temptation, we are strengthened by God. In temptation, there is always a way of escape provided by God. So we have no excuse. Temptation is never so great that we couldn't say no. Temptation is real and temptation is dangerous. Take heed lest you fall, but temptation is not decisive. There is a way out. So, verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idols. Leave them aside. Put them away. Leave that house where you make those sacrifices. Because, as he said in verse 20, it's participating with demons. And again, verse 21, now we're getting back to where we were. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. No rivalries, no competitions because we cannot, verse 22, provoke the Lord to jealousy. In Exodus 34, God says, My name is Jealous. Can you imagine, husband, say that to your wife? Here's my name. Here's what I want you to call me. Jealous. I mean, that... That's gutsy. At least, that's gutsy. But God says it. God says, because he's the Lord, and there's none besides him, my name is jealous. It's in light of this that we get to a verse that we quote all the time, and often out of context. I do it probably as much as anybody. Verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 10 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let your eating and drinking ceremonially be to the glory of God. Let your eating and drinking in all of life be to the glory of God. And not just your eating and drinking, but whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God because... You're to glorify God with your body. You've been bought with a price. You're not your own. Don't overestimate what the Lord's Supper is and what it can do. Something real and spiritual is going on in the Lord's Supper, but not merely by the elements themselves going into our mouths like, they're, like it's religious pills. I can give you a pill and I say it's Oxycontin. And you can say, I don't think that'll do anything. And then you'll take it, and you'll start giggling a bunch, right? And we'll have fun watching you fall down, and it'll be a good time, yeah. Just because you don't believe that it does anything, doesn't, it doesn't mean that it doesn't do anything. Some people think the Lord's Supper's like that, that you don't have to do anything except eat it. Poof. There. Check. Good for another month. Do you approach other things? Maybe not the Lord's Supper, but maybe your Bible reading like this, or prayers, or giving, or tasks around the house, things you might do for your spouse. Check. No. These aren't religious pills. It's not what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, that the Lord's Supper, that the sacraments are ex operato. Uh, by themselves working, or by the fact that they're being performed, they work. But Paul says we should do it in remembrance of him. We have to remember him. In fact, let's just read it. 1 Corinthians 11. In verse 24. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thoughtfully. Rehearsing in your mind what it is, what it does, what it means. In the same way, he also took the cup. The cup signifies something. It symbolizes something. Don't just swallow it, but stare at it. Look at it. See blood. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Think of the new covenant promises in Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Read those promises again, maybe today, as we partake tonight. And see again what is fulfilled for us in Jesus' blood for us. This is the cup of the new covenant, so do it as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let it proclaim to you. Let Let it preach to you. Let me end with some words from John Calvin on some of this which I just realize is a risky thing to do, to read something about 500 years old at 7 p.m. on a Wednesday. <laughs> It'll be God's work if it blesses your heart. We'll know for sure. Listen to this. True believers can gather great assurance and delight in the Lord's Supper because in it they have a witness of the growth into one body with Christ which is now ours. Becoming son of man with us, he has made us sons of God with him. By his descent to earth, he's prepared us for that ascent to heaven. By taking on our mortality, he's conferred his immortality upon us. Accepting our weakness, he's strengthened us by his power. Receiving our poverty into himself, he has transferred his wealth to us taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself, he has clothed us with his righteousness. The bread and the wine are therefore presented to us as bread and wine so that we may learn not only that they are ours, but that they've been destined as food for our spiritual life. When the bread is given as a symbol of Christ's body, we must at once grasp this comparison as bread nourishes, sustains, and keeps the life of our body. So Christ's body is the only food to invigorate and enliven our soul. When we see wine set forth as a symbol of blood, we must reflect on the benefits which wine imparts to the body. And so realize that the same are spiritually imparted to us by Christ's blood. These benefits are to nourish and refresh and strengthen and gladden. That's what's communicated to us in the bread and the wine. Jesus died in our place to forgive us of our sins and reconcile us to God. And to be our God and to be in fellowship with us. The Lord's Supper pictures not only our hope, but our ongoing relationship with Him. It not only gives us union, but it expresses and demonstrates that communion that we share with Him tonight.